This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Episode 70 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and today I am coming to you from the offices of Storyline Entertainment on the Universal Pictures lot in Universal City. My guests are the people behind that production company, Craig Zayden and Neil Marin, who spent the last 40 years as professional partners in producing. These two, who are 67 and 60 respectively, started out in New York as a couple of Broadway buffs developing projects for Joe Papp at the Public Theater. They eventually relocated to Los Angeles and quickly made a name for themselves as guys who specialized in bringing theater to the screen. With TV movies like Gypsy, Cinderella, Annie, and The Music Man. With feature films including Chicago, which won the Best Picture Oscar, and Hairspray. And most recently, with musicals televised live on NBC. 2013's The Sound of Music with Carrie Underwood was the first example of this genre since the 1950s and proved to be a smash hit. It was followed by 2014's Peter Pan with Allison Williams, which was a bit more divisive. And then by 2015's The Wiz, which people just adored and for which they are now top contenders for the Best Special Class Program Emmy, for which their Sound of Music was nominated two years ago. Over the course of our conversation, we talk about why and how they, in partnership with NBC chief and fellow theater lover Bob Greenblatt, revived this type of programming, which is now being imitated by other networks as well. We talk about the highs and lows of their recent stint as producers of the Academy Awards. They handled the show in 2013, 2014, and 2015 when Seth MacFarlane, Ellen DeGeneres, and Neil Patrick Harris, respectively, served as hosts. And we talk about their plans for the future, which include bringing back to Broadway The Wiz and bringing to Broadway Bombshell, an offshoot of their short-lived but very beloved NBC drama series, Smash. And bringing to NBC two more live productions in the next few months, the musical Hairspray in December and a non-musical A Few Good Men in February. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Craig and Neil, thank you so much for doing this. And to begin with, we always ask our guests where they were born and raised and what their own folks did for a living. So, Craig, you want to lead us off? Sure. I was born in Miami, but I moved to New York when I was two. So I was brought up in Brooklyn. I have, of course, no recollection of Miami at all. Thank God. My father owned a candy store in Brooklyn. I've always known him in that way. And, and uh, it, my mother was always a housewife. So that's that's basically what they did. Neil? I'm a Brooklyn boy through and through, born in Brooklyn. My father was an import-exporter of brass and aluminum, and my mom was a housewife. So both of you, from everything I've gathered, were very early adopters of theater, just big fans from a young age. How did that start for each of you? Maybe Craig again, if you just... Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, it was very interesting because I remember as a kid, for my birthday, I would always get some money, not a lot, a tiny bit. And I saved the money year after year. And then when I had enough money, 
I spent it on a subscription to Variety. And at that time, there was only weekly Variety, you know, in New York. I, I remember my parents were very upset because they said, you know, what are you, crazy? You've been saving all these years and that's what you're getting? <laughs> and I said, yeah, but that's what I want. And then uh, it was aggravating because I'd get it and it would arrive each week and my father would take it and read it and not give it back. And that was just your exposure to, to what, was, what was going on in theater and then you just would go in? Well, from, from there, that really fed me the information about shows. Uh-huh. And that's really where it started. Uh-huh. And I would see the shows coming in and that show's coming in and all of that. And then I would look for the shows I read about in Variety in the New York Sunday Times, Arts and Leisure, and look for the ads. And when there was an ad, there was always a full-page ad for a new show, I would then send in the, the coupon and I would buy tickets. But I, could, I was only allowed to go to Saturday matinees because it was safe to go into the city. <laughs> daytime Saturday. Daytime. <laughs> and then I could come back before it was dark. And it's the only time I could see a show is on Saturday matinee. That's how I really started, uh, you know. And I got, when I was a kid... I, I was so young, I didn't even know what I was looking at for the most part, but I, I do remember I got to see Barbara Streisand and Funny Girl. Wow, wow, wow. And I got to you know see all of those great stars and those great musicals, and I didn't really comprehend what I was looking at, but later on, it was kind of thrilling because I got to actually have a conversation with Streisand about having seen Funny Girl. Wow, that's awesome. And, and Neil, for you, was also just sort of taking the train in sometimes? Well, no, my, my parents, you know, luckily were kind of avid theater goers. So they started taking me to the theater when I was really young, thinking that I would enjoy it. I guess in retrospect, I was kind of lucky that I was kind of a very overweight, unpopular kid who kind of found, you know, great solace in in going to the theater and then, you know, just falling in love with it because it was, you know, your escape. And so a- as I got older, I would kind of develop that passion and then I would, you know, beg, borrow and steal to get into the theater, <laughs> to get into the city to see shows. And right. so, and I would always convince my parents to take me to the theater for a special occasion, for a holiday or for my birthday so they, they indulged my love of it as I got fatter and fatter. <laughs> and, uh, but when you, when you think back and you think of all those, those building blocks, there's no sort of regret or anything about being overweight and unpopular <laughs> because it kind of formed me today. Totally. So you just kind of like embrace that. And I can't that. believe that you were overweight. You're, so you're trim as, as anything now. I, I know, and that. so good looking yeah. and very popular. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, fast forward a couple of years, I believe to 1970. And Neil, you're off at college, Brooklyn Brooklyn College. College. What happens that leads to your first meeting with Craig? You know, I was going to be finishing college very soon, and I wanted the career in the theater after I stopped wanting to be an actor smartly enough. I always kind of was smart about that. (laughs) I thought, how do I work? in the theater for a living, and I don't know anybody. So I thought, well, I'm here at Brooklyn College. Why don't I organize a lecture series? And I organized this lecture series where I invited anybody that I 
ever wanted the meet in all facets of the theater to come to the school and lecture and I made sure to spend an inordinate amount of time with each person so they can be charmed by me. <laughs> and one of the people I invited was Craig who had written a book about Stephen Sondheim, the first biography of Stephen Sondheim, which I thought was a great book. Mm -hmm. But I was second choice. He wanted Sondheim. <laughs> but Sondheim wouldn't come. No, it was no second choice. <laughs> so I, I, I was it would have price. to be no, second to somebody. No, was, it's not the no, worst. There was no second choice. <laughs> so it was Sondheim and Craig. Right. So now, Craig, you go to Brooklyn College yep. and you meet Neil. What was your impression of the, of the whole thing? Well, I, w I was very surprised at how uh, knowledgeable he was about the theater. Most of the people around me were, you know, at that age, were not knowledgeable. So he seemed to know just about it. He had an encyclopedic mind. He not only knew everything about the theater, but he even knew every show, what theater it was in, and the stage manager <laughs> of each show. And it's like, what? Pre-internet, that's amazing. Right. Yeah. Amazing, yeah. amazing. He was the internet before uh, yeah. there was an internet. <laughs> so you guys obviously kind of hit it off, but Neil, you're, you were still in college. What was the next... What was, how did this progress from there? Um, well, I endeared myself to Craig, and at that time, post-Sondheim book, he was putting together, the, he had produced a great Sondheim concert in New York, which was like a legendary concert that honored the work of Sondheim up until that point, and then was putting together a series of club acts at this place called The Ballroom, which was a very small cabaret in Soho mm -hmm. in, in Lower Manhattan, and was going to work with all these great Broadway composers and lyricists, my heroes, mm. and we're going to produce, direct, and write these, like, these weekly club acts. Craig asked me if I would like to be his assistant on it, and having a car, I got to be a schlepper <laughs> and, and, and to just kind of just be there like a fly on the wall and, right. and actually being intimidated and being able to talk to all these great legends. Wow. And Craig, this whole production caught the attention of Joe Papp, who's running yeah. the public theater? Yeah. I mean, what happened was uh, we had a new opening night every week, and we had Andrew Lloyd Webber. We introduced the first version of when Evita came out as a concept wow. album. We introduced Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. Charles Strauss was out of town at that time with Annie. And we introduced Tomorrow. John Kender and Fred Ebb had just written New York, New York. And it's the first time that anyone ever heard, because this, the movie hadn't come out yeah, yet. Yeah. And no one had heard Liza sing it. So we introduced New York, New York. So we were introducing all of these remarkable new songs that, be, that would end up becoming classics. And the funny thing, at that time, we knew they were great songs. Yeah. You, you could we tell. knew yeah, they were yeah. great songs. Oh, yeah. Wow. We and, never kind of anticipated, like they would be so long-lasting and standard, right. but we knew they were great songs. So as a result of, of all of this, Joe Papp says, I want to work with you guys? Well, what happened was Joe came to the shows. What happened was it became this cultish event because everyone's favorite composer-lyricist was performing their own material in this cabaret. So, you know, P Angela Lansbury showed up in a limo. We had the mayor Lauren come. Bacall. Lauren Bacall. Lauren wow. Bacall. We had the mayor coming. Yeah. We had, uh, in fact, one night, uh, I, I don't think Neil's ever recovered from it, Richard Rogers showed up. Oh, wow. 
Wow, wow, wow. And he met Richard Rogers. And uh, he showed up for Sheldon the Hornet. Joe Papp went to the shows. He didn't actually even meet him when he came to the shows. And then out of the blue, he called and said, you know, I, I've seen the shows. I really admire them. You want to meet? Can you, can you come over to the public theater? I said yes and went over to the public, met him, and it was love at first sight. I mean, it was like one of those things where it became father and son immediately. Wow. He adopted us, basically, and we went over to the public and we ran theater projects there and created a cabaret theater up at, uh, in one of the theaters at the public. And we were in charge of finding new plays, new musicals. We could commission plays and musicals. So the shows uh, we did, we did Runaways, Elizabeth Suedos. We did... I'm getting my act together and taking it on the road. We commissioned wow. it, actually. Wow. Yeah. We did The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, the stage with Sheldon Harnick. Yeah. Uh, David Mamet played The Water Engine. Terrific. So you guys were basically at this point getting on the trajectory of being producers as opposed to something else. This was the beginning. Very entrepreneurial. And and one last thing, and John Guare's Landscape of the Body. John Guare's, which was not, which was in a bigger theater. Wow. Yes. So obviously things are going so well there. Why in, I believe, the early 80s did you decide, let's pack up and go west? We were working in an off-Broadway nonprofit system in terms of thinking ahead in the future, it was kind of impossible to make a living. Yeah. And at that moment in time, in the late 70s, early 80s, New York was kind of an impossible place to live. The, the crime was high, and also the creativity in the theater seemed, other than the public theater, seemed to be draining away. And through circumstance, we got the opportunity to have lunch with Peter Guber, who at the time, what was he doing? He was co-running Casablanca Record and Filmworks with Neil Bogart, okay. which was the, one of the most successful companies of the era, of course, in the disco era, and then branching into film. And what was that meeting brought about by? What was the reason for it? A girlfriend of mine worked in publicity at Columbia Pictures, and she said, you got to meet this guy. And so she arranged for us to see his film, and his film was called Midnight Express, and the next day, she arranged to have a lunch with us and Peter Gooper at, at the Plaza, wow. at the Plaza Hotel. So he, at that time, was visiting New York. He was. He was coming in from L.A. And, uh, and you guys just did, did what came of that meeting, Craig? Well, I mean, he said to us, I want to get into theater and I want to expand my company into theater. And I know your background with Joe Papp. If you teach me theater and get me into that world, I'll teach you movies and television and get you into that world. So basically offered to come and move out to L.A., and he would do all of that. And you guys jumped at that because it seemed like the the future was brighter in film than theater. I think that part of it, you know, I never at that time, I remember thinking about it, and I never felt like uh, theater had lost its luster. What I did feel is that we were working in tiny off-Broadway theaters, and the amount of energy and work and creativity that was going into these very, very, very small theaters. And I just felt, God, can't we put in the same amount of work and reach more people? Yeah. And then when Peter came along, it sort of looked possible that you could do the same amount of work 
and, and find a bigger audience and more people can see your work. So that became attractive. And it seems like almost from the very beginning, and, and I guess it really would have been from when you first made it out to L.A., the thing that you guys were doing, which continues to this day, was not just looking to bring your work generally to larger audiences, but looking to bring the theater to larger audiences. Yeah, I mean, I think we kind of had an understanding that we were still passionately devoted to the theater. So in everything we've done, or just about everything we've done, if you look closely, even if it's not blatant, there will be some footprint of some theatrical tie totally. and so we're we're very proud of that because it's a way of always staying in contact with those roots well we'll obviously get to the stuff that's happened in the last few years with live musical theater being brought to people through the through their screens but first if if we can i'd like to go back and just recount how this isn't a new phenomenon this really I think would probably date back to Gypsy, right? Is this the first thing that was sort of along these lines at CBS? Well, I, I would say, you know, the first movie that I produced was Footloose. Okay. In 1984. Okay. And uh, that came about because a friend of mine, uh, Dean Pitchford, had just won the Oscar for writing the songs in Fame. He wanted to write a movie musical after that. And he came to me one day and with a paragraph in People magazine. And the paragraph was about a town in the Midwest that banned public dancing. <laughs> and he said, do you think there's a movie here? And I said, actually, I do. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm going to book a flight. He booked a flight, went to that town, checked into a motel and stayed there a week and interviewed all of the people. He didn't say he was doing research yeah, for a movie, yeah. but he interviewed all the people who were actually the characters in Footloose. And uh, he came back and he had all the research and I started working with him and supervising while he was writing the script. And he ended up writing the script and all the songs. I remember I was working at that point for Dan Melnick. He had a company called the Indie Pride Company. It was very interesting because Dan was doing all these big movie star, expensive movies. When I brought him what was Footloose, I said, you know, I really want to work on this. And they basically got Paramount to give us $8 million (laughs) uh, to go off and not bother anybody. Right, right. And the whole time we worked on the movie, Paramount ignored us. They had no interest in what we were doing. And it was just sort of like, yeah, that would be be a cute little, you know, movie and all of that. And we went off and eventually made the movie. And they still ignored us. And it wasn't until we finished the movie and we had... A test screening. And all of a sudden, the executives at Paramount were forced to come (laughs) and see the movie. Right. And the audience was screaming and cheering and standing up and dancing in the aisles. And it sounds like a cliche, but the audience actually was. And then the Paramount people were going, what is going on here? (laughs) You know, because there was nobody in it that anyone knew. Uh, Kevin Bacon was unknown. And, you know, obviously John Lithgow and and Diane Weist and all the others that were in it. And Chris Penn. And they just were kind of in shock. They didn't know what was happening. We released the album and it went triple platinum in the first week. And then went on to become, at that time, Mm -hmm. the largest selling soundtrack in history. Mm -hmm. Later on, of course, it was usurped by The Bodyguard and all these other movies. But at that time, it was the number one movie in the country. And it was the number one album in the country. And we had six top 40 singles. 
so now you had you had some credibility to do to apply to whatever you guys wanted to do next, right? Yeah, but also, you know, what happens when you have a hit like that? First of all, it costs no money at all. Everybody in town thinks that you know something that they don't know. <laughs> and so you get taken to breakfast and lunch and dinner by everybody in Hollywood <laughs> because they want to find out, like, how you knew right, to do this right. movie. <laughs> and, of course, I didn't know anything. All I knew is that I loved it yeah. and I, I, I was attracted to the story and the music and all right. of that. But I had no grand scheme or anything. But it was so funny how they thought, well, you must know something because how could you have such a big hit and spend so little money? Years later, I guess, because that would have been like 84. It was 84. '84. So flash forward to the early 90s when you guys are first starting to put together this idea of of wanting to bring theater to, to television. Uh, I guess with well, it was, we just kind of stumbled into it. Stumbled you know, into it, it, it wasn't saying we're going to do a TV movie musical. Right. It was more like we knew this agent in New York who represented one of the authors of Gypsy, who okay. called one day and said, "How would you like to do a movie, a TV movie of Gypsy? The authors would like you to consider doing this." I went. Whoa. <laughs> and that's when the light bulb went off at that moment, getting that phone call. It usually starts with a phone call. Then we pitched the idea of Bette Midler, of course, was a favorite. And then, Craig, you called uh, Jeff Sigansky. Jeff Sigansky, who was at CBS at the time. And he didn't know what to make of it. <laughs> if he thought, like, he was excited by it because he thought it was a novel idea. And then um, he asked people that worked for him, and they said, you're, you're a fool because you're going to spend all that money and fall on your face. Uh-huh. So he was torn by it. Also, we had a very rocky month because Bette Midler uh, basically... Well, first of all, the reason why she was crucial at that moment is because she had just starred in all those Disney films. So she was in one smash yeah, she was one of the biggest stars in the world. Sure, sure. After the next... And she hadn't been doing TV. Right. So to get her to do TV... At a time when movie stars didn't do TV. No. Right. So it was such a big deal. And, you know, she basically kept saying no. And we kept going back and saying, you know, you've got to do this. And finally, what I learned, my lesson that I learned from that was she said no every time we asked her uh, when it was during the day. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I called her one night, and it was 11 o'clock at night, and she had just come out of the sauna. And she was so relaxed, right. and she was so dreamy <laughs> on the phone. And I said, I can't do this anymore. This is the last phone call. Right. And she said, okay, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and, and then I went, for real? Yeah. Or are you going to wake up tomorrow and say, I never said that? Oh, my but, God. But no, she, and, and that's, how, that's how it happened. And the world shifted. Well, let's just note, huge ratings for, for that, and also 12 Emmy nominations. Yeah. And so you guys were, you'd now created this model. And I guess, what happened, did you then establish a formal relationship with ABC where you would go and do a few things there, or did it just happen that your next no, few things no, would be No, what, what happened is, uh, I mean, it's a very easy story, is that the following morning after the ratings for Gypsy came out, mm-hmm. Jeff Sagansky called us into his office, and he said, okay, guys, what's next? And we said, how about Cinderella with Whitney Houston. <laughs> and at that point, we were going to have Whitney Houston play Cinderella. 
for whatever reason, it never, I forgot the exact reason why it never progressed at CBS, but we had this property which seemed built in for Disney. So we went over to uh, ABC, and at that point, Michael Eisner was thinking of reviving the wonderful world of Disney and thought that this would be one of the most perfect events for it. And that's what led us to ABC and to making a deal and to start doing musicals for them. And Cinderella, one of the things that I think people should be reminded of, if they they may well remember, is this is now 1997. Brandy ended up playing Cinderella. And talk about diversity today where people are, uh, you know, very frustrated at the lack of it. Here you had Brandy, Whitney Houston, Whoopi Goldberg, along with Bernadette Peters and Jason Alexander and a lot of other great people. But this was and and there was all blended families. Yeah. I mean, where we Bernadette Peters, one of her daughters was black, one of them was white. Cinderella was who black uh, first black Cinderella who was falling in love with a Filipino prince whose parents were one was white and one was black. So we just kind of just said this is the world. And that was... Uh, and, and this is 97. 97, amazing. So and that came really to credit where credit is due, Joe Papp. Because the one thing we learned, well, we learned a lot. So mm-hmm. it's not the one thing, but one of the things we learned from Joe Papp is the concept of colorblind casting. Because in all his theater stuff, he always casts roles that were normally white roles with Asian, with Latino, with black actors. And it, it didn't make any difference to him. And he was the only one at that time who was doing it. So we were there watching all this unfold, and we picked that up. So the very first chance we had, we did, we almost said like it was as though Joe Papp cast the show. That's amazing. And, you know, I think it's important history for people to remember. While Hamilton is wonderful, it didn't come out of nowhere. uh, And, like, like. Nothing comes out of nowhere. So no. so you guys now had this thing going where on the heels of Gypsy in 93 and Cinderella in 97, there's Annie in 99, the Music Man in 2003. Clearly you were stamping yourselves as guys who were specialists at doing this kind of a thing. Right. And we should also just note a, an interesting little factoid. I guess Victor Garber was in all three of those. <laughs> Cinderella, Annie, Music Man, he was sort of your yeah, uh, thread the, there. Plus the Judy Garland movie. Plus and, the Judy Garland movie, and, right. Yeah, Made My Shadows. Yeah. And and eventually that role of, of almost your uh, lucky charm seems to have been filled by Queen Latifah, who's now yes. picked it up late, lately. Yeah, but That's right. And at the same time, though, you, you guys were also doing a lot of TV biopics about performing artists we had the three stooges and the beach boys and martin and lewis and and as mentioned judy garland where judy davis gave her emmy winning performance did you feel that this was where you wanted to be focusing your attentions or did you find that you were almost because of your success at doing this confined to doing these kinds of things i never i don't know if you feel different i never felt confined because we loved all of these projects mm-hmm. and and the idea to kind of manifest these ideas because these are all things we wanted to do. I don't think it was confining at all. I mean, certainly you want to grow, mm-hmm. but in terms of feeling restricted by doing these, no, no, just naturally wanting to grow from there and see what the next step is. Some of these, though, were, were offshoots of us wanting to do more musicals. We constructed the Judy Garland miniseries like a musical. Uh, although it was a drama, we 
laid out the musical numbers to tell the story. And the same thing applied when we did the Beach Boys miniseries. Mm -hmm. So we, even though they were not musicals, for us they were musicals. And uh, so we were were going the next step. And I, I must add that the reason we were doing all this for TV is along the way, we always dipped a toe in the water to try and get movie studios to do a feature film. That's what I was wondering. So it was always a a hope that you would move into movies. Always. And and everybody said no. Yeah, because we started out wanting to have solely a movie career. Was the problem less with them wanting to work with you guys than it was about the fact that movie musicals just weren't being made. It was it was that. Yeah. I mean, because uh, to say movie musical was like saying a dirty word in right. Hollywood, and it was like the worst type of word you can go in, and people would look at you like like you've said something horrible. Why had it gotten to that point? I mean, because, some of the biggest hits ever were musicals. Sound well, of music. But there hadn't been big movie musical hits since Sound of Music, mm-hmm. and it seemed to be, you know, that you, the entire genre was criticized for the product that was put out not because it was movie musicals because they were just bad films there was a series of behemoth sized musicals that didn't make money that weren't very good and so people said oh nobody wants to see a movie musical rather than saying you made a bad film (laughs) so you guys how does how did chicago enter the picture i think one of the things that we should note that you from everything i understand deserve full credit for is that Rob Marshall ended up getting a Best Director Oscar nomination for that and has had a very nice film career since then. Well, was, he had just been a choreographer on on shows. We, that... we discovered him on Broadway mm-hmm. as a choreographer. And when we did uh, Cinderella, we hired him to choreograph the movie of Cinderella. And we watched him when we made the movie. And he acted like a director. His eye was like a director's eye. He directed the actors, and he he moved the camera in such a way that we just thought this guy's a this guy's a director. Mm-hmm. So the next one we did was Annie, and we went to him and said we want to offer you to direct and choreograph, and he said no, <laughs> and he really kept saying to us, "I'm not a director, I'm a choreographer. I don't know why you're even offering me this movie." <laughs> and we said, "Well, haven't you ever thought about directing a movie?" No. And I I don't know anything about film. So it was very interesting how we had to twist his arm because he just didn't want to do Annie. And, uh, I mean, there's a lot, a long story to this, which we won't go into now. But um, it, it took us a long time to convince him to say yes. And then the terrible thing that happened was he said yes, finally. And we went to Disney to say we've offered him Annie. And they said, we don't want him. And uh, we we really had a standoff because Disney said, Annie is too valuable a property. We're not going to give it to a guy who's never directed a movie. And we said, but we believe in him. And they basically, we had a big fight because for several weeks, we said, then we won't produce it. And we knew at that time that Cinderella was so huge but the last thing they wanted to do was another musical and not have us produce right. it. Right, <laughs> you were in a good position. So they kept on calling and saying, let's go over lists of directors. And we go, nope, <laughs> we're not going to go over lists of directors. We want Rob. And finally, they angrily mm-hmm. conceded, and they said, we could hire Rob. But we, we moved into that world, and we, we made the movie, and it was so successful. And it was, it was amazing, because Rob had never directed before. And if you look at the movie of Annie, 
it's as good as any feature film musical. It was amazing. But the first day on the set, I mean, you'd expect there to be some hesitation or some sort of like uh, skipped beat. But right from his first time where he said action, he was flawless. Amazing. Flawless. It was like, it was unbelievable. So it was less of a tough sell when you wanted him to direct Chicago? Well, no. Well, the, he, he pitched himself. Oh, he pitched that, himself yeah. for that. Okay. Well, what happened yeah. was um, after we did Annie, um, Harvey Weinstein called us and asked us to produce the movie of Rent. And we said no because, um, like, we actually have a vision for these musicals. And if we have no vision, we don't want to do them because we don't know how to do them. Sure. And we had no vision for Rent at all, none. And we thought, we'll just make a mess of it, so we shouldn't do it. And Rob uh, also got a call from Harvey uh, to come and direct Rent. Rob said to us, you know, they've had this movie in development for 10 years called Chicago, and it's never gotten made in 10 years of development. For any particular reason? Uh, they never developed a, a good script. Right. The scripts, there were a lot of scripts, and there were a lot of directors, and a lot of actors, and a lot, a lot of everything. And it was never any good, because we read everything. Mm-hmm. And it was, you read it and went... This is horrible. Yeah. <laughs> and what happened was uh, Rob came to us and said, I'm going to go in there, and Harvey thinks he's going to talk to me about rent, but I'm going to pitch him my idea of Chicago. And we sat with him, and he told us he saw the idea for him was all the musical numbers were through Roxy Hart's eyes, and, and it was her vision of all the music. And as he described it to us, we got chills. Because we thought, oh, my God, you cracked it. (laughs) And he went in and he pitched it to Harvey and Harvey loved it, immediately hired him to to direct it. And Rob, of course, said he had to He wants his team. He wanted us to come with him to produce it. And we then hired Bill Condon to write the screenplay. And, you know, what was remarkable about Chicago is how enormous it was in in both areas that mattered. Like, creatively, it was the first movie musical in 34 years that won the Oscar for Best Picture. So creatively, it couldn't have gotten better than that. Financially, it ended up being the highest grossing movie in the history of Miramax. So when you have both the money and the artistry, it actually broke down the wall Mm. of people saying movie musicals don't work. I remember sitting, there was one of these, Richard, somebody did one of these advanced screening classes in New York, you know, where they will show up. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember his last name. Yeah, yeah, one of those. And I was invited by somebody who was a part of the class to be their guest. And I had never seen people start applauding in the middle of a movie. Yeah. It was it was amazing. And for you, the overall experience of, you know, your first feature film, it was complicated personalities that you were dealing with. Was it a pleasant experience? Oh, it was a great experience. It was? I mean, uh, working with Rob has always been a joy. And even Harvey, you know, Harvey, who's, you know, everybody knows Harvey's reputation, was incredibly supportive and loved the film. So it... It was a lot of hard work, and the hours were horrendous. Mm-hmm. But in terms of, you know, there, the filmmaking is usually, there's usually a lot of crap that goes <laughs> on, and it had the usual crap. Right. But it was in a different sort of environment, because I think, I think everybody kind of felt the specialness of it, and everybody had the best interest of the movie at heart. Sure. But, so, you know, it was one of the few times where you could take the dailies of any day, and watch them and say, this is the most incredible movie I've ever seen. Wow. 
you just saw any day's dailies and you just went, wow. <laughs> you know, everyone is a very close group of people, too. Really close. Sure. And I think I think the learning experience, I'll, I'll just tell you one quick story. Please. After Chicago came out and was a hit and won the Oscar and all of that, Neil and I did a tour of studios because we hadn't been around meeting everybody for a long time. So we went and either met the presidents or the chairman of every movie studio. Mm-hmm. And we'd go in and sit on the couch and every single person said the same exact thing. Oh, my God, we, before we talk about anything, we have to talk about Chicago. <laughs> and they talked about Chicago for about 20 minutes, and they went on and on about how much they loved it and what they thought of it and all of that. And we sat there and nodded. And at the end of what they had to say, we asked the same question in each place. And we said, would you have made the movie? And every one of them said no. Wow. We learned in those meetings that... When they saw the movie, they knew it was amazing and brilliant, but they wouldn't have taken the chance to make the movie. And that's when you really appreciated Harvey Weinstein, because he was fearless. He never doubted that that was going to be a great movie. Well, isn't that the biggest thing that's changed since, let's say, The Sound of Music, which would, I guess, be the tail end of the studio system, where if Warner Brothers wanted to make Whatever yeah. the, mu- the movie yeah. was, Jack Warner, whoever, says make it. Now Warner Brothers answers to shareholder, that's and right. it's a risk. That's right. So that's a, that's a shame, but I guess in a way the divide, like the slightly less of a gamble they feel is when you're going to do a musical, if you do it on TV the, as opposed to on, on the big screen, the, maybe the, the financial stakes are a little less uh, horrendous, and they, they are more, that's maybe why they're more amenable to doing the stuff that you guys have done in the last few years? Well, I think... Because uh, it's not like Chicago's been followed by a million other movie musicals. No, no, no. But, but, you know, still, even on TV, there's not a million musicals. Right. But the difference is, on TV, they're events, mm-hmm. and they attract a big audience, usually. Mm-hmm. I think that's what the networks want. They want to please their advertisers, they want to please the audience, and they want to give the audience a big event, especially in this environment now, which is you know, why we thought of doing something live mm-hmm. because of the immediacy of it all in terms of an iteration of how to do something special with the musical genre. But before we went back to that, of course, we did Hairspray. Yes. We were really excited about Hairspray because... It was so radically different from Chicago. Totally. It it was not remotely similar, and we felt we were doing a different kind of musical. And they both were really satisfying, and and we loved loved both of them. Now, in between Hairspray and the live musicals of the last few years, you guys did a, a little side project, I guess overlapping with the live musicals called The Oscars, mm. and I had the privilege of being at the three that you produced, and we should note that this was the 85th, 86th, and 87th Oscars, the longest consecutive run for producers of the Oscars since Gil Cates had produced three in a row 16 years earlier. How did that gig first come about? I think Hawk Koch had just become president, right? Phone call. Phone call from yeah. Hawk. Neil was in New York on the set of Smash. Smash. Okay. With Jennifer Hudson, actually. Wow. It was during when she was doing her guest starring role. And I was in L.A., and uh, the phone rang, and it was Hawk. 
And we knew Hawk, but we weren't like close to Hawk. Mm-hmm. We just knew him. Mm-hmm. And he he said, "What would you say if I asked you what you would do if you were offered the Oscars to produce?" <laughs> and I said, "I don't know." And he said, "What do you mean you don't know?" I said, "I I have to talk to Neil about it, and I have to think about it, and all of that." And he said, "Well, how long would it take?" <laughs> he started getting irritated right. with me because he he thought I was going to go, "Oh wow," yeah. but but it's because it's so intimidating. Sure. It, it, it's like, oh my God, you're, you're filled with excitement and, and joy, but you're filled with terror. <laughs> so um, basically, um, I said two days, and he said, okay. So I called Neil, and I said, you won't believe the call we just got. And he went, really? And, um, and then we called Brian Lord, one of our agents at CAA. And I, I said to him, like, you know, what should we do? And he said, well, it's very simple. Are you terrified to have people everywhere rip you to pieces? <laughs> Are you willing to, to really stand up and, and do the best job you can and not worry about, you know, people hacksawing you to death every minute <laughs> of every day? Because that's what's going to happen. If you do a great job... They're going to kill you. Right. If you do a bad job, they're going to kill you. Right. So you're going to get killed. Right. So it's it's sure death. <laughs> right. It's a blood sport. Uh, Neil and I spoke about it, and we said, you know. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it really is an honor to be so, honest. Though. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you know, so we said yes, and we embarked in, in uh, it was three years of three different experiences. Well, can I just briefly touch on each of them? Just ask sure. you a quick question about, so... I thought that Seth MacFarlane was great so as did, the so did 85th we did too. host. We, we love Seth. And in fact, I want to ask you about something because I think the people that took issue with him, it primarily stemmed from the, the We song. Saw Your Boobs song, right? Yeah. Now, maybe I'm imagining this, so and you guys will obviously know, but from my vantage point in the theater, the people who he was referring to who were in the audience were dying with laughter yeah. at what he was saying. Yeah. I believe, though, that what was shown on television, the, the cutaway shots... I don't know if they were pre-taped oh, they, or something. They were. They were so pre-taped. people, were, they looked appalled. And well, so people were appalled the, on their that behalf, was, That though. was the joke. But isn't that where no, the no, disconnect no, 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 happened? No, no, no. Here's the interesting. There there were a couple of post-feminist voices right. that, that really took offense that started the ball rolling in terms of the negative reaction towards the boob song. But we were privy to the... ABC research in terms of the audience reaction. Mm-hmm. It, it was barely a blip in terms of the mass audience, in terms of their objection to the boob song. It, it didn't even register. The number one thing the, the audience complained about was the appearance of Michelle Obama. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was the, that was the number one. Picture, the yeah. boob song... But don't but think, because, I mean... So but, the audience at home uh, got it. Well, I'll tell you what happened. This is, this is really what yeah. happened. Uh, we basically pre-shot reactions. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to be like springtime for Hitler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was supposed to be them overdoing their reactions right. so that the audience would know it's right. a joke. Right. And I think that what happened was they didn't overdo it enough. Right. So instead of it looking comical, it looked like 
they were angry. Right, and so the audience was offended on their behalf, On right? their behalf, but they weren't angry. But which audience? Well, that, I see what you're saying. That they, Well, the, whoever it was that took offense... I said there were a couple of people that started being loud about it. But, but aren't those, the those people... And the press, the press. They ran with it. Yeah. But those people that did take issue with it, it seems to me, took issue with it on as if they were standing up on behalf of these people Correct. who looked like they were yeah, upset. That's and, that's right. and yet they were part of the joke. So that and, was... And also, you know, even those that we didn't shoot reaction shots... Yeah. We called them all and said that we're doing this number and you're in it. Are you okay? Right. So everybody... And they all thought it was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> so everybody... Everybody was good. Right. So either they were... They came in and pre-shot... Or they didn't come in a pre-shoot, but they all said, great. So, like, there was nobody who was offended except, as you said, the people who were offended on behalf of the people. I could understand people not thinking it was funny. Right. But I can't understand people being, like, offended by it. No, I... I mean, it's either you think a joke is funny or it's not funny. It was a joke. I I thought it was hilarious. And And so did everybody that I could see in the room. And you know what? Yeah, and that you heard from. The song was one minute and 50 seconds. Of what? Like three three hours? Three and a half hour show. So everybody sort of liked the show, Mm -hmm. but because of that number, they hated the show because a minute and 50 seconds after three and a half hours. Oh, but the the other thing is we did a little market test of the song (laughs) even before we went forward with it, where it was performed to to basically a a research Mm -hmm. group as to would anybody be offended. And 100% thought it was hilarious. (laughs) And mostly women. So we 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 were even taking Taking precaution. What do they expect when you have Seth MacFarlane? You're not going to get well, like masterpiece theater. You're gonna, that, that, if we, you, if you, you know, the reason Seth is Seth is because right, that's who right, he is. Right. Yeah. Do you hire him and then expect him to do? Right. Uh, what do you expect? But it was amazing because he did offer something for everybody. He was out there doing crooning, yep. singing as well, well and we all. Showed the... we showed how multifaceted he is. He's an entertainer. Oh, it was great. So then the next year, after you guys dealt with that, you now for the '86 work with Ellen DeGeneres and you have the most watched show in 14 years and this is I guess the question is did you ever imagine that the selfie and the pizza handout would take on the life of their own that they did because you know what we knew it was funny right we knew we knew it was good but we didn't know what would happen because like for example the selfie could have turned into a big nothing right but it didn't and it was all because of circumstances live television and the pizza you know there was a moment with the pizza that it could have just been a disaster and the person who saved it was brad pitt because when ellen brought out the pizza nobody took a piece and nobody reacted to it brad pitt was sitting with angelina jolie he jumped out of his seat (laughs) he grabbed the napkins and the paper plates and handed them out oh that's great and when he did that it broke the ice and everybody grabbed the pizza now brad pitt had not gotten out of his seat and done that, that whole bit would have made maybe fallen on its face. So, so it's all about live television. You just don't know. Well, and the, and so then for the 87th, where you brought in Neil Patrick Harris, mm-hmm. I guess the thing just, there's always the focal point for different people. In this case, there seemed to be a, a, a large consensus that the magic trick just wasn't didn't necessarily pay off in the way that he hoped it would did you see that that could have gone wrong was that a concern i think with magic there's always i mean that's there's always a risk of it not happening and yes it was risky and it didn't have the payoff that we wanted to but 
But you also, I mean, if you're going to bet on anybody you, as a host, you right. bet on Neil and, Patrick and, Harris. You know, that, that is part of who he is, sure. the magic. So you kind of have to let Neil be Neil. Sure. Yeah. Well, I would say that of the three years, ironically, the thing we were most nervous about mm-hmm. was Neil wanting to do the magic trick. Mm-hmm. We were very concerned and overly cautious that this might really not work. Mm-hmm. But he was so self-assured mm-hmm. that it would work mm-hmm. that we had to support sure. his, his decision to do it. But it ended up not working. And uh, But again, live television. Well, I guess if, if there's a legacy of these three shows that you produced, I imagine it might be the introduction of a lot of musical yeah. performance, yeah. right? Yes. There's unprecedented amount. Yeah. Yes. And and we should remind people historically it had pretty much just been the musical the song nominees. Right. Here you're bringing in Shirley Bassey to do the Bond tribute, you're you're doing a Chicago tribute, you're doing different things. Now, music may Streisand, not be everyone's Streisand. cup of tea, but at least that it seems like people tune in because well, they again, yeah. you know, looking at the research yeah. from ABC, yeah. viewership spiked during Every single musical sure. performance spiked, and we we had Pink doing "Over the Rainbow," oh, yeah, was which was amazing. amazing. We had Lady Gaga doing "Sound of Music," That's and great. you know we we had all of those incredible moments. Uh, Streisand's first appearance on the show in like decades, yeah. and Bette Midler had never performed on the show. So the the thing here with that is that with the Oscars, if you think about it, even though they're the, the oldest and most prestigious and whatever of the various award shows, on paper they sound like the, the most boring because at least with the Grammys and the Tonys, you do have built-in performance. You're seeing the people do what they're being honored for, so you guys just brought more of that into the show. And try to make it germane to movies. Right. But, we, you know, again, we knowingly and, and willingly put more entertainment on that stage during Because those... if we're going to be hired, that's kind of what we do. Right, we, right, We right. put on shows. <laughs> you know, we just don't hand out awards. So would you... It sounds like, from what you guys said at the end of the, after the 87th, that the arrangement had always been three years. Yeah. It was uh-huh. a three-year contract. Yeah. Would you have any desire to do it again, or was it was it just a, a stressful, gut-wrenching kind of thing? You know what? It, it's stressful and gut-wrenching, but, you know, after taking a little break, if we're, if we're approached again, yeah. I mean, personally, I would consider it because... It is also when you're doing the show, you're you're working on Mount Olympus mm-hmm. with everybody that people that are the great artists of our industry. Mm-hmm. And sometimes every once in a while, it's nice to visit Mount Olympus. Yeah, right. And in fact, even with the stress and, and, <laughs> and all of that, you know, you're still having stress on Mount Olympus. For things that came after the Oscars, you drew upon relationships that were established at the Oscars. So oh, there's no question. We're going to come to that. I would say that we had very good talent relationships before the Oscars. Sure, sure. But after the Oscars, we knew more actors and movie stars and people that we were that we had relationships with now because we worked with them and we're able to find actually projects to do with them. So things have come together in a way that really made it wonderful sure. afterwards because we had new friends. Well, in the home stretch here, I've got to ask you guys about this period of your careers, I guess that that have been at NBC during overlapping with Bob Greenblatt, right? Over the last 
decade or so, starting, I believe, with Smash, right? Yeah. So, well, actually, it goes further back. Further than back that in because NBC. Our, our first professional working relationship was when he came to the rescue of the Reagans, wow. the miniseries that we that we did at CBS, which was not broadcast. And then remind res- me what happened with that. Here's well, a showtime. But what was with the Reagans? What happened with the Reagans? It became very, very controversial because there were certain things. There was such a pushback from the Republicans in terms of thinking. You know, nobody had read a script, but nobody had seen the movie, and it became this hot potato political issue, which was covered on all the talk shows. And then going into the editing room, we were in like in a bunker, getting (laughs) notes from cuts and more cuts and more cuts until it wasn't going to be aired by CBS. And then Bob Greenblatt said, I'm just, I'm new to Showtime. I want it. And he rescued it. And this was like 90... Four or five or something like that. No, I actually, the way I remember it is that the first half of that year was Chicago and the second half was the rest. <laughs> so a little bit closer to like 2000, so early 2004. Four. Four, okay. Yeah. Well, right. and yeah, it would have been the Bush, the you're Bush right. years you're right. of the world. Right. You're right. So, and Nancy Reagan coming out and trying to, to you know, like to change. They were, there was a bill going forward on <laughs> in the Congress. Senate where they wanted to put Reagan's face on the nickel or something like that, or on the, you know, mm, and it was yeah. like it had reached ridiculous proportions. World. And then, so that was our first time working with Bob. So eventually, Bob, and then. After that, yeah, we did we did the restored version of Liza with a Z on Showtime with Bob, and then following that, that's when Smash came into the now picture. Now you guys started working with him on Smash at Showtime, yeah, yeah, then he... and we we were hired by Steven Spielberg. Okay, and, yeah, and so then eventually, now Bob moves to NBC, takes over at NBC, and wants to bring as his first move there, I believe, wants to bring Smash over with him. Yep, and so for people who don't know, Smash is basically... uh, Let me tee it up for you guys. Can you share what... Because Smash now lives on potentially in bombshell which we'll come to but what smash itself oh there's beautiful i was there that night it was awesome it that was night? unbelievable that, 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 i it's one of the night? most was, amazing things i've ever seen it was thrilling this was the actors fund uh one night only concert of oh, bombshell I you no i'm gonna believe me i've got to wow. talk to you about that but so so smash though for people who, who are you know smash up. was a tv series about the behind the scenes making of a broadway musical and in season one it was about the making of a musical about the life of Marilyn Monroe. And so we dealt with all of the behind-the-scenes personas from the producer to the composer, lyricist, book writer, and actors, and directors, and choreographers. And it was a, the definition of a backstage musical drama with original music by Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman. And maybe one of the best pilots ever made. Absolutely. I think the pilot was so great. Directed by Michael Mayer. And uh, with a great cat, Deborah Messing. And Deborah Messing, it. Christian Borle, Catherine McVie, Megan Hilty, a great cast. Angelica Houston. So, unfortunately, after what? It was one, one two season, seasons. two seasons. That did not go on. But, I mean, the fact that you, you guys felt always, and I seem to feel to this day, supported by Bob because he's a big theater yeah. mm-hmm. but like a huge theater buff, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, after Smash... You go to him at some point. Where did you well, come up with this idea? No, the, well, the, the the story is, you know, we have always, after having done these movie musicals on TV and in feature films, we decided that the next frontier would be to do a musical live. It was mm-hmm. just something that we were inspired by looking at the past.
past, meaning how they did movie music, how they did musicals live on TV in the 50s, Cinderella, uh, Peter Pan, and on and on. I could probably list a couple of more, but that was a genre we thought, wouldn't that be interesting to do it now in when, when networks are trying to get more eyeballs? And it was just a coincidence that Bob Greenblatt called us and he said, how would you guys like to do a new TV movie, Oklahoma, you Jackman, do it, uh, you can shoot it on film. And we said, that's a really good idea, but we have something better. And we pitched him Sound of Music Live. And without missing a beat, he said, yes. Amazing. And so... You, and that's the short story version. No, well, I think it's it's fantastic. And and for the record, you guys managed to get Carrie Carrie Underwood and a great group for this. And as a result of a lot of hard work, I, it it became a massive hit. Twenty one point three million viewers, the network's yep. highest rating in seven years, and it created this new era that we're living in, where not only NBC but now Fox and others are going to be trying to replicate that success. Can I just say the most amusing part of it for us was that the whole time we were preparing it, people were laughing at us. They were, I mean, we were so aware that people were going, yeah, Sound of Music live, Carrie Underwood. I mean, people were and the last time they laughed at us was Gypsy. <laughs> so now they were laughing. Why do you think? Because they because thought they it set up thought to fail. They was, didn't understand what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they thought it was preposterous, you know. And the truth of the matter is, the next morning when we got those ratings, we, they actually had to go back and recheck them <laughs> because they thought couldn't be 22 million people. Right. I mean, that's not possible. What ended up happening was, this is the amusing part. We got calls from friends of ours at other network who said that people canceled their schedule for the day and had emergency meetings to say, what happened last night at NBC? <laughs> like, what is this? Right. What, 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 22 million people? And, and people were like, "How do? what do we do? What should we be doing? Like, you know, so it, it felt like there was a shift in the landscape in terms of live television. Just one, one night changed it. And I guess, how much do you guys think social media had to do with this? Because it, for both beautiful feedback and hate watchers oh, well yeah. but but th- that was you know we we can't say we were great prognosticators mm-hmm. but we kind of factored in that examining the tv landscape the live sporting events the award shows were hotbeds of social media and we thought would there be that kind of reaction to these live musicals mm-hmm. and would that generate any sort of interest and so one thing fed into another including you know that that the hate watch I mean, we got, we started experiencing that a bit on Smash in terms of there was, it was in the infancy of Twitter and social media, but we got to see it grow and evolve. And we thought that these kind of events are natural for the social media. Just era. hiding behind anonymity people. Yeah, will... we didn't realize that it would turn into what it turned into, sure. but we just had an inkling. I guess you, you encountered it a little bit more, the, the that darker side of, of the internet with Peter Pan, where it was just, you, you've said, America had just, you found, I guess after the fact, not through any fault of your own, you have Alison Williams, you guys did a great job, but there's some stories that people have just had enough with, right? Well, I think... I, I really think that what happened was um, we thought that Peter Pan was still a popular story. And shortly after we aired, you have to remember that Warner Brothers came out with their feature of Peter Pan and spent, what was it, $150 million or something? Something like that, yeah. And it was gone yeah. in, in one day. And they lost, it was like one of their biggest losses. So it said to us, 
no one's interested in Peter Brown. Right, right. <laughs> and we, we realized that. We had no idea that that was the case, but we realized it afterwards. And if we had to do it over again, I clearly don't think we would have done Peter Pan. Just a different story. So 2013 was Sound of Music. 2014 was Peter Pan. 2015, The Wiz. And I guess coming off of Peter Pan, you probably felt that you wanted something that you could count on to deliver. But what was interesting is that, to me, The Wiz doesn't seem like an absolute slam dunk because while the 74 Broadway show was a hit, the 78 movie was a flop. So what was it that convinced you guys that this was something that you wanted to do now? Well, I think, first of all, it it's a classic story. Secondly, it has one of the great scores of all time. And our belief was in going back to what made the Broadway show a success and not transforming in it into something that it wasn't. So it was about going back to the core of the excitement and the passion and the emotion of that original piece that was done on stage in the 70s. And we felt that it was beloved by us but we didn't really anticipate how beloved the piece was by the black community and and more and and how much talent respects and worships the whiz and and so in going forward with it we were just kind of enveloped with this whiz love and craig so you go back to as neil says go back to the original material but also take steps to make it a little bit more contemporary, right? In yep. terms of the people that you hired to work on it. Can you Well, talk first about of that? all, Harvey Firestein did a remarkable job in, in updating the book in terms of making it feel more contemporary and fresher for the audience today. We had the, the best music team to make the music not sound dated, like it didn't sound like a Broadway pit mm-hmm. band. It sounded really contemporary R&B music. So the sound of it was amazing. And I think that uh, the cast was astonishing because everybody wanted to be in it. It was one of those things where usually you have to go to people and plead with them to be right, in it. Right, right. Here, everybody wanted to be part of it. And when you spoke to people... Like, for instance, Queen Latifah, when we said, you know, we asked her to do it. And uh, we said, do you know it very well? And she said, listen, (laughs) when I was a girl, it was the first Broadway show I ever saw. And when Stephanie Mills sang Home, I decided that night to become a performer. So everybody had that kind of story. And funnily enough, talking about the Oscars, when we were working with Common at the the Oscars on the, the Great Glory number... Um, he said, so what are you guys doing? And we told him the whiz. And that's when he told us of his great passion. And <laughs> he just loved the whiz. And we said, you don't sing. And he says, no, I, I'm, I'm a rapper. Uh, and we said, well, we're going to try and figure out a way to get you into this. Ah, that's so, so that's cool. how common. And same with your choreographer from the Oscars, yes, right? Yes, Fatima Robinson. Yep. Yes, exactly. Who had done right. Happy at the Oscars. Now you bring her to do this. And yep. it was also to maybe the, the, make the dance more... Uh, of of the day, right? We yeah, didn't want it to be yeah. Broadway dancing, right? Right. We, we wanted to have a, a whole new look for the dancing, and we got that. So the the make or break decision, I guess, in every way on this was finding Dorothy, because again, coming back to the song "Home," if that doesn't work, that's right. Your show doesn't work, that's right? right? So how this is it, talking about a, a backstage musical like Forty Second Street, kind of uh, you're, you're you're going out a whatever, and you're going to come back a star. This was 
the ultimate story of that. Can you tell people how you came to Shanice? Uh, we had an open call in New York City one rainy Saturday morning where about eight or 900 girls lined up around the block each with a, a number, and they went in and they performed a couple of bars of home in front of the casting director and the director who just happened to be there when Shanice walked in. And when Shanice walked in and sang a couple of bars, the director identified her and said that, think there's something there with that girl. We weren't there at the open call that day, but he texted us and he said, I think I found out Dorothy. (laughs) And so then Shanice was put through the mill, you know, just in terms of she had to keep on coming back and auditioning for Bob Greenblatt. We had to fly her out to put her up against a couple of people that we found out here. But we were still kind of sure that this was our girl until finally that last audition in L.A. She was told she had the part. But it was Kenny who really identified her. This is your right? director, Kenny Leon. Kenny Leon, yeah. who is who's our, our great director, who's yes. also directing Hairspray Live. Ah, cool. And he, he identified her from this massive open call. That's terrific. And uh, just a few little details here as we wind down. I mean, you said, I think, Craig, in one interview, that your budgets have actually gotten smaller with each of these passing live musicals, which kind of blows my mind. Wouldn't I would think yeah. you would get more and more, but you're saying, why is that? Um, because when you don't know how to do them because if you know they hadn't been done in 50 years mm-hmm. you're spending money on stuff that you find that you didn't need uh, but you, you you spent it just out of safety and once you realize that you can cut corners and not spend that kind of money uh, the budget started getting reduced mm-hmm. and and more workable because if you did it as a one shot the sound of music if it was done one time mm-hmm. and there were no more live musicals mm-hmm. You can afford to spend that kind of money. And if you're going to do it annually, you can't afford to spend that kind of money. You have to find a way that economically makes sense. Now, the the challenge is to make it look as good Mm -hmm. and to feel as good and sound as good but to do it in in a better way so that that you're not overspending. And Neil the the so the first one sound of music was pretty much a filmed play essentially, right? A yeah, we, we we actually the the words were all spoken when it was originally done on Broadway for the most part, yeah. So then with Peter Pan you have a more roving camera. Yeah, and it was a more 360, 360 point of view, right? Uh-huh. And now you go to the Wiz and the big upgrade it seems to me here the big innovation was was backdrops, right? Well, we had an LED screen. Okay. The LED screen kind of added so much of the look of the Wiz that we're able to kind of have minimal sets in front, but the, as a whole, it created quite an unusual and, and we think very beautiful look. Absolutely. Well, we, we, experimented, yeah. we experimented on the Oscars because Derek McLean did the sets for us for all the Oscars. And he did the sets for The Wiz. And um, also um, Lee Lodge, who is the genius of all of the design of the... The digital design. The digital Mm -hmm. materials. He designed all of our stuff for the Oscars for all three years. And then he designed The Wiz. So we we basically took what we did on a small scale in the Oscars and did it on a huge scale. 
on the whiz. Especially with uh, Paul Taswell, who is our costume designer, who won the Tony Award for Hamilton. Yes. He created these costumes. I think they're some of the best costumes we've ever seen in our lives. I mean, the invention and the beauty and, and, and just the intricacy of that work is kind of brilliant. It was. And for you guys, it must have just felt like a, a little bit less maybe stressful than the other two because you weren't simultaneously dealing with the yeah, Oscars, it was, right? It was, it was nice yeah. to have a, a singular <laughs> focus without something looming over your shoulder. So when you're done at this Long Island, I think, sound stage, yeah. uh-huh. right, at the end of this performance where there's everything you do is going right out to the world, got to feel a certain level of stress while it's happening. What happens the minute it's over? Take us to that moment for you guys. After how many months of preparation, too? Well, it's a long time. It's almost a year. I mean, not full time, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it it's a long time that we have committed to these musicals because the prep is everything, mm-hmm. and it takes so long. I would say that the stress level was extremely high on The Wiz because of our fear of having a young girl who had never done anything before playing with all of these amazing stars and not knowing when she got out there live whether she was going to pull it off. She could freeze. She could freeze, yeah. yeah. Or hit bad notes Mm -hmm. or, you know. And we sat in the truck with Bob Greenblatt and we'd get through each act we go, oh, oh that, okay, that was good. I, we, 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 right. That was fine. That right. was good. That was good. That, you know, and until it was over. And then we went, wow, she did it. And she really when did. it's over, meaning she's done home. Right? Yeah, she's you know, done that, home. that was the most stressful. That was the big thing. Oh, right. yeah. You know, if you don't have a home that's, that knocks it out of the park, you don't have the whiz. Right. And uh, you need to end like Shanice ended. Sure. Uh, now, you guys aren't looking at social media during the well, performance, are you? Well, to be perfectly you? honest, during commercial breaks. You I, did? I did, yeah. <laughs> and did you? He's the only one. Yeah, yeah. He's the only one. And Bob Greenman said, keep it to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Except it was so good on the whiz, I had, had to pipe up. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So Bob would get very mad when Neil would say, oh, you know what they just said? <laughs> And Bob would say, "Please stop. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to know." But on the whiz, it was it was it was really um, it it was really great to read. It's got to be surreal. I mean, because the hate yeah. watching had stopped. Yes, yes. Well, the last thing here is just talking about the the future. I believe you guys are definitely bringing the whiz to. Broadway is that? It, it, there's a strong likelihood. Strong likelihood that that, that will happen. You know. The good news for Broadway is that it's booming. Mm-hmm. The bad news for new shows that want to come in is the availability. Right, theaters. a lot of the theaters yeah. are like being renovated yeah. and yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. So, so that's the problem. We're, we've been ready to go for Broadway, but mm-hmm. there are no theaters. That's the biggest issue because you would probably be able to bring most of your cast from the live musical, right? Yeah, you know the the economics of doing it on Broadway are much different than doing it for television, sure. and so and also the time commitment is yes. different. So you know it, it's how to balance that. Uh, they've all expressed interest at various points in wanting to be involved, but you have to juggle it all. And how about Bombshell for Broadway? I, as I said, I was there that night and I have never felt such an electric feeling in the audience. Every single person, and forget about it, in the audience, there were people that were offering outrageous sums of money to oh, give up their God. ticket outside and the, oh, just outside God. there. It was such a, so is there is there a desire and a likelihood that that will come for more than one night to Broadway? Oh my God, yes. I mean, we have it in development at Universal Stageworks, 
which Bob also runs. <laughs> and uh, we're in the process of meeting with directors and book writers. And uh, as soon as we get the right team, mm-hmm. we're going to put it together. And, you know, Bob was very eager to put it into development and to get versions of it written so that we can start doing readings and stuff like that. But Bob's determined to do it on Broadway. And you think Megan and Kat and people are going to be back? Well, well, you know, it all depends what everybody's doing, what the script is like, right. you know, who who the various personnels. Certainly, you know, Kat and Megan are definitive. Yeah. We don't know what the what it's gonna look like once it's written. Sure. Um and last but certainly not least, live programming. You guys have already lined up, I believe, your next two. And what was very interesting to me was that not only do we have this year, later this year, Hairspray, as as was mentioned, and again, something that you've previously done as a movie, but then for the following year, you're not going to do a musical, but you're going to do a play. That doesn't mean we won't do a musical next year. So it would not be instead of a musical. No, in fact, December is Hairspray, uh-huh. and February that soon after is going to be a few good men. Yeah. Good men. So it's like doing the Oscars on top of uh, wow. a lot of musicals yet again. And, so, and then the next December will be another You will do them. Okay, so that's cool. So that's great. I, yeah. I was actually you know, a little... We, no, we, we, no, no, we no. actually, we said to Bob originally, just so you know, um, if these work and they sustain, can we do a play as an experiment? Mm-hmm. He said, yes. That's great. If you find the right one. Right. So basically... While these things were going well, we said to Bob, okay, now it's time to do a play. And obviously the cost of a play is so much smaller than the cost of a musical. <laughs> right. Um, you guys have earned the right to do that with these others. But but we said, uh, Bob said, what would you do? And we said, you know, Aaron Sorkin's A Few Good Men. And he said, yes. <laughs> and, and we went to Aaron, and Aaron is so excited about doing this because he loves the idea of live television. And the theatrical elements of it. I mean, I, if I recall, and you guys will know the answer to this, didn't he write A Few Good Men while bartending at a yes. Broadway theater? Yes. Yes, so it all comes full circle. He was 26 years old. Unbelievable. And he's rewriting the script because uh, he said, you know, I wrote it when I was 26, and I think I'm a better writer now. And I think, you know, same plot, same character. But he said, I think I could do another pass on it and and do a script that's more textured and and better written. So we're going to have a new Aaron Sorkin script. Awesome. And he's been a joy. He's fantastic. Oh, my God. What a joy. And he's also someone that guarantees you the cast. Yeah. <laughs> because when you go to big actors right. and you say, do you want to do A Few Good Men? And Aaron is writing a new script and he's going to be there as he's producing it with us. Right. They go, uh, Aaron Sorkin? Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Right. Unbelievable. Well, it seems like there's a lot of exciting stuff to look forward to. And I thank you guys for your time and all of this great entertainment. It's thank been you. a lot of fun to do. Well, fun. thank you. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. Awesome.